0: Okay, I'm here with Matt and uh, Tom, and today uh, I, I consider both these guys kind of experts on this topic. We're going to talk about nonviolence and talk about their own personal journey and how they've come to this and the way that it's impacted their lives. but I, I would have to say that that uh, in a conversation like this, we're not looking to to make some sort of or or, or describe some sort of exhaustive answer to you know, problem passages. But I have to say that when I have a problem, I often think of you, Tom, that, oh, (laughs) I'll just, I'll just call Tom and he'll tell me the answer.
1: I do the same thing. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that, but, uh, I, I don't think I'm worthy of that for sure. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, I really appreciate you and, and all that you've taught me and, and really it was, uh, sort of life-changing for me to go through your class. Um, You know, I grew up and didn't have much of a church background at all uh, growing up. And uh, it wasn't until my my 20s in the midst of um, drug and alcohol that that, uh, God really got a hold of me. And um, so that was pretty life-changing there to start out with, that uh, having grown up apart from any even really teaching of God uh, to then become a, a Christian and not really have any sort of background or or, or base for my Christianity and hopped around a, a few different types of denominations and uh, And then going to to Central, and and still I was probably the reason I'm so interested in church history, I think, is not having a church home growing up or, uh, you know, sort of a a family there, a a church family of uh, a certain – what's the word I'm looking
0: for? Tradition. Yeah, sort of a church tradition. And that's then, the thing. Yeah. That's the thing that, uh, you've brought out and, in, in in your studies, uh, run down for us a little bit. I mean, uh, in the restoration movement, you know, we've kind of drifted away, I think from our roots, especially in regard to, uh, peaceableness and nonviolence that actually, uh, isn't it the case and that, that, uh, we're really Anabaptists at, at the root. And uh, in fact, pacifism uh, or peaceableness was uh, kind of an inherent part of the beginnings of the restoration
1: movement. Yeah. So, um, and I think that has to legitimately be true when I don't think there's a single person in the restoration movement that wouldn't trace the restoration movement back to, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, and Barton Stone, right? Those are the big three. And all three of them were past us. all three of them, um, which I'm not sure gets talked about a whole lot. Um, which is fairly suspect, by the way. Right. But I do think that that's important, that, that all three were committed to, uh, you know, nonviolence in some way. Tell me why
0: why do you think that is i mean i I, I think that there must be something inherent to the the, the the theology that they were arriving at that they also arrived at nonviolence What do you think that is
1: so uh, you know with, with our our friend Jason um, I remember many years ago we we were joking around and and uh, before he became committed to nonviolence and we talked about a um, he he was uh, peppering us with hypothetical questions which i'm sure he'll remember and and i forget it was it was either you or, or i that said well how about a little hypothetical bible reading and <laughs> and i do think you know we might we would probably push back on a lot of the modernism um that's inherent in the Restoration movement. Mm -hmm. However, the sort of idea that, you know, where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where Scripture is silent, we are silent. Mm -hmm. I do think Campbell's, both Campbell's and Stone, came upon the idea that Scripture appears to be speaking about nonviolence, specifically in the New Testament. Uh And I think that's important to note that. Um, Because Campbell was actually... Uh, and I don't, I don't have my. I did a paper on this, and I don't have it with me. But um, Campbell was questioned about his Mennonite uh, hangers-on because he had some friends that were were Mennonite, and that people were saying, "Well, that's why you've adopted this uh, understanding." And Campbell said, "No, it's it's from Scripture that I've adopted this understanding." Um,
0: It just makes all the sense in the world. and I mean, that's sort of that these guys are doing a daring kind of thinking. That is, they're kind of sweeping things aside. They're recognizing that they've been indoctrinated into a system. And so it, it does what you're describing is that peaceableness is just there all through the New Testament, but in some way our theology filters it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons that I really like um, Barton Stone, outside of the fact that he might not have been a believer in the Trinity, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs>
0: Just um, one little thing. Eh?
1: Right, so if we get past the part that he might be a heretic, um, is that, like, it, when you go to his his church, uh, he was very early inviting uh, African-Americans not only into the church, but at the beginning they were separated. And then he even got rid of that separation where everyone was worshiping together. And if you think about this is pre-Civil War and he's in Kentucky doing this. Um, You know, so those, I I do think that all, all three of them, and unfortunately there's, I've found less about, Thomas Campbell and and his teachings on nonviolence, but obviously it's it's there in some way through uh, Alexander. But um, but all three of them were were revolutionary at, at that time, and so I do think, like you said, brushing aside that that the chaff, maybe we would say, and getting to what the heart of Christian teaching is that they picked up on. Um, and it wasn't easy for them, because you know, especially Alexander, he's writing this stuff during the uh, the uh, war with Mexico and then the Civil War, and everybody was ready to go to war. And Campbell was saying, "No, that this is this is wrong. This is unChristian." Um, and he even gets it back to listen that you know we we've been reading a lot of uh, First John here where where we're at right now uh with some guys that we're teaching and and that's kind of what Campbell is going to saying you cannot as a christian raise up arm against your brother and say you love your brother in any way and which is only what John said also <laughs> uh, so that seems significant um and and so Campbell is is teaching that and then you know he's even going with with nationalism and um, so he's saying, you know, because even back then, like we're having now, the discussion of what is a Christian nation was going on. And so Campbell raises the, the opposition and says, okay, if if you were going to call the United States a Christian nation, it's only because Christians live here. So therefore, if a Christian lives in any other nation, that too is a Christian nation, and we can't take up arms against it.
0: That pretty well, uh, yeah, eliminates any kind. I mean, I guess if you even had a notion of just war, you just wiped it out,
2: right? Good point. Yeah, and Paul, I'm a little interested in how you would answer that question. You know, that the the sort of disconnect uh, between you know the Campbells and the not just the the current state of the restoration movement, but the kind of the larger church. You know, what's what's the disconnect there?
0: Well, that's uh, actually I. Uh, I wanted Tom to answer that one. So, uh, I think. It, let me take a, a shot at it, and then Tom can correct me and go further. Uh, and that is, I mean, that the, there is this. I think very often we think of of history. Are you guys still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that we we think of it as a progressive thing. You know, well, we're we're further along in history. But in many ways, I think theologically, we're in a kind of bleak place. We're kind of in the the wasteland, theologically, so that between the period that we're talking about and the period now, that something happened, and I think it happened in the, not just the Restoration Movement, but it happened in American evangelicalism, so that there is a kind of, uh, uh, almost a return then to a Constantinian Form of the faith in which the state has co-opted the church in a manner that was very much accepted in, you know, a Catholic or Scandinavian, or you know, Protestant Reformation uh, uh, understanding, but was in fact uh, not in. You know, that was the whole American experiment was to separate these things, and yet it seems that uh, that with certainly within our movement there has been an almost I think it's not just this topic. In other words, I think this topic marks a overall failure of thought, of theological thought. So that, I mean, I'm still committed to the basic principles that you find among the the founders of the Restoration Movement. But in terms of commitment to what that movement has come to look like today, uh, I think it's just more more evangelicalism. It's very hard to distinguish any distinctive, you know, Anabaptist strain that uh, has endured. But now Tom can give us the real answer.
1: Oh, I think you're right. Uh, I also, I think it's interesting, you know, talking about sort of the church being uh, co-opted by Mm. the government. Um, That. the the government specifically has done some things against the restoration movement. Um, David Lipscomb, I believe it was Lipscomb. It might've been Harding. uh, Again, I don't have my my notes with me on this, but they were basically told by the government, you have to stop speaking out against violence. Hmm. And they're they're, I I don't remember if it was the gospel advocate, um, but it was shut down. Wow. By the government until they, they agreed to do that. Um, and, Tom,
2: was that, like, so can you talk a little bit about sort of the nationalism? Like, I don't know where the Campbells and Bart Stone and those guys, like, was there sort of that strain that was running through their writings with pacifism that was sort of a, an anti-nationalism? Or was that more the domain of sort of the Anabaptists? Or how did that work?
1: No, I think there is that, uh, at least in Alexander, okay. for sure. Um there is that that because uh, again he he specifically goes against the idea that the United States is any sort of Christian nation because his idea is there is already a Christian nation the church so that it can't be right um, so yeah it's you you see that too right um,
0: Matt Matt said that real quick are you uh, agreed that Campbell came to the notion that the church then is the, the, the true national identity for the Christian.
2: Mm-hmm. Because, right. because of his, eschat-
1: his, his uh, sort of eschatological position? Well, here, let me, I'm, I'm looking at some quotes here by uh, Campbell, because I do have some of that stuff. Um, and he said, uh, the church he wrote cannot constitutionally undertake to reform the state. The state, so far, as it is not the church, is composed of men in the flesh, men who live in obedience to all the lusts and passions of the animal man. Then later on, he's going to talk about um, that about the church being a Christian nation, and I'll see if I can find that quote. And and by the way, this is from the Disciple of Peace, Alexander Campbell, on pacifism, violence, and the state by Craig M. Watts, Uh um, which is a, a fantastic little book. Uh-huh. If anybody gets a chance to pick it up, but um, you know, in in talking about the church or the the nation being a Christian nation, he says, "Well, you know, who baptized it, and where where was it baptized?" Uh-huh. Um, if it's a Christian nation, and so I I can't find that quote on the, on the why, Paul. Yet, Paul, were you thinking of sort of a failure
2: in the Campbells? Uh, eschatology and sort of connecting that to the current eschatology of the restoration movement and their failure. I, I, I,
0: I have to think that. And again, you don't want to put, lay too much blame on Alexander Campbell because the poor guy is working, you know, the, the uh, Campbell and stone they're they're almost literally, you know, isolated on the, on the Western frontier. And, and so that it is a kind of, uh, in no way do I want to, you know. You can't, as somebody said about Sigmund Freud, you know, criticizing Freud. Well, you can't expect one man to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, as, but in the end, yes, I I think that the the theology that was set forth by the Campbells, uh, by Alexander Campbell, who was the great, you know, the 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 theologian of the group, uh, in some way proved inadequate. Don't don't you think so, Tom?
1: Yeah. Now, I I think some of that is not from Campbell himself, but maybe the system that was set up. Um, you know, because I I found a couple things that that I can read here that in a so in an 1828 debate he quoted uh, Soam Jennings who stated that in the ancient kingdoms leaders manipulated the populace with the belief in rewards and punishment in the afterlife and used the idea of God to give their laws sanction. The state has been most positive towards religion when it has found religion useful to some political purpose. And then Campbell himself said that the governments of this world have either been, talking about the church, either been directly opposed to the church or, at best, pretended friends, and therefore their influence has always been opposed to
0: the true spirit and genius of the Christian institution. Which that I mean that's a that's such an insightful and telling thing that that it just seems that 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 would be obvious to people, but I think that is precisely what has been lost. There is this sense that uh, you know we're, we're just now I think there's a kind of revolt and a reaction to that uh, you know the myth of the Christian nation, uh, but yet Campbell already he already saw the myth of the Christian nation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, if you just read his, his address on war, or any of those sorts of things that you can, you can pick up on that, that he, he saw, it, uh, which is pretty amazing. Again, talking about the time that he lived in for him to get that, mm-hmm. um, it is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he probably saw it too, as I would guess, And I don't know if it's if he specifically talked about this, but I would guess that in some way he saw that as nationalism being against unity. Mm. Mm. You know, because of course one of their bigger ideas was the the unifying of of Christians to just be Christian. Well, if I'm an American Christian and you're a a Ugandan Christian, Mm -hmm. um, and our our nations are at war with one another. Um, then, which am I, American or am I a Christian?
0: And maybe I mean it's again the the you know it's easy to criticize in hindsight, but he seemed to have failed to come out strongly against the Mexican American War, and he himself then uh, I mean he was obviously against it, but. He was afraid that it would create disunity, and so yeah, and
1: Now I, I don't know. I might push back a little bit that he came out strong against it because he did come out against it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, maybe maybe not as strong as we would like him to, but I don't know if anyone else was uh-huh. coming out against it aside from Campbell.
0: Was he doing that in the uh, the Millennial Harbinger?
1: I, or the, it was either that or the one that predated that, which I can't think of the name of off the top of my head.
0: He seemed, and, and I may, uh, uh, actually I'm thinking here of a conversation I had with John Toddy that, you know, that he seemed, even though he's committed non to nonviolence and very much against the war, he seemed to put his priority on Christian unity as if, nonviolence or peaceableness in some way was a separate issue from mm-hmm. unity. When in fact, you know, the theological point would be you can't do unity and embrace any form of acceptance of violence.
1: Mm. Right? Yeah, I would guess uh, that Campbell would probably disagree with that. Yeah. Um, and I do think you're right that I think he would disagree that you can't be uni- do unity and accept violence, because I think he probably would say that you can. Um, and so you could look at that as a, certainly a, a failing for him, perhaps. Um, and maybe I'm just, I want to give him more credit, because I don't know anybody else that's saying this outside of the Anabaptists at this point.
0: And let me let me clarify what I mean by that. In other words, I'm not saying that. I mean, he he was this broad-minded individual who even embraced unity with the people following Stone, in spite of Stone's clear heretical point on the Trinity. And so he he was very broad-minded and looking to unify. And he did not want the issue of peaceableness to in any way disrupt that the unity that he was driving toward but what what i meant was that at some deep level though uh there is the sense that we cannot you know as in first john we can't do both things at once we can't uh be hate, hateful or violent toward our brother and embrace them in and so in, in a sense there is this inherent contradiction
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now maybe I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no. So is it a deal breaker, right?
0: And that's, a, yeah, uh, The you know, I, I don't want to exclude people on the, the position that they take on this. Uh, but I, I do think that it, uh, you know, that I also would like to be among a group of people that are like-minded on this issue in the local body of believers, so that there may be a clear declaration of Christian peaceableness coming yeah. from the body of Christ.
2: Yeah, and I guess I'm not ready to say that it's a deal breaker, but I am ready to say, though, that a commitment to violence uh, can give rise to an alternative notion or, or you know, of Christianity, uh, and, that, and it's potentially a very dangerous form. Of Christianity, um, in my opinion. So I'm not willing to sort of say, okay, well, we can't we can't be brothers anymore because you're ready to take up the, the sword and I'm not. Uh-huh. But I would strongly caution that brother and say, I'm not sure how you do that and follow Jesus at the same time. And in as much as you stop following Jesus, I'm not sure how we can continue to be brothers. Or am I saying too much? Then?
0: Well, I think that uh, again, you know, your you guys's personal journey. And I'd say mine too, but maybe Matt relate that. In other words, you've passed through uh, various stages of Christianity. And I think Tom, you did too, uh, in 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 which the fullness of the gospel in in some way was denied to you because of the inadequacy of the theological understanding, and that that resulted directly in uh, it impacted your lives. Can you run that down if. if is that's the case
2: yeah well i mean for me i kind of grew up in a in a you know there was some violence at home um i lived in kind of a rough neighborhood so there was uh the potential for violence every time i went outside if it, you know even if it was just fistfights or whatever but there was fights all the time in my neighborhood um and then yeah sort of inherited uh you know kind of a calvinism um you know that that Made violence available as part of the the system there, even at the heart of the system. One could argue, right, with their uh, the, the you know sort of notion of the atonement and other things, and um, sort of an evangelical Christianity that I definitely think is just married to the state in many ways. So um, that's the kind of Christianity that I that I sort of inherited, and then uh, you know I, I did a whole podcast with you on it. You know, ended up sort of um, doing a lot of um, you know violence to myself and then through my drug abuse and, you know, um, sort of living uh, above the, or outside the law, <laughs> let's put it that way. And um, and so whenever I, you know, I'm with Tom, it's like whenever I first started taking your classes, I, all this sort of seemed very foreign to me um, until I did started to see kind of the holistic nature of the salvation that you were describing and the peace that's a part of that salvation, not just a sort of internal peace, but um, a peaceable outward, you know, ethic, right? And then it just became, I don't know exactly when it happened, but it was just kind of became clear to me that, boy, you know, anyone who's, you know, like Tom said earlier, it's like if you've done violence yourself, you either become hardened and sort of given over to it, um, or I think you kind of have a moment of uh, almost like a realization of like, yeah, man, that was wrong. That was wrong Whenever whenever I did violence. And the violence that was done to me was wrong, and that can't be how it really is. So if Christianity is claiming that this is the way that the world really is, uh, that peace is the way that things really uh, are, because Trinity, because God exists in perfect peace apart from the creation, um, then I think that you can come to accept and say, you know what, Um, as counterintuitive as it may seem, as countercultural, especially in the context of evangelicalism as it might seem, um... This, it, you know, and because of Campbell and others and Tom and other people who have realized that, hey, this seems to be what the New Testament is teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, you start going, man, I'm not sure how I'm going to work this out in practical existential life, but it does seem to be the way of Christ that is peaceable, you know, peaceableness. You know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it goes along with, a uh, um, like, that holistic Christianity that I was talking about earlier where. Um, you know, I had I had sort of had the idea when I became a Christian that, and it may have been just my own fault of misunderstanding or or teaching. I'm not sure, but that the whole goal of Christianity was just to escape this life and go to heaven. Yeah. And so, as long as you got that checkmark in your column, you were you were going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having you know, I was set up to. I mean, God had me all set up because I had your class and I was reading, uh, Philip Yancey, the Jesus I never knew at the same time. And he's writing about the sermon on the Mount saying, Hey, I think you're actually supposed to believe this and do this. I think Jesus Jesus really meant this stuff. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that it's not just uh, a scheme to go, Oh, look at you filthy sinner. You can't do this. But Jesus is actually saying, no, I, I think you need to live this. This is, I, I'm telling you to live this way. Uh, so I'm doing that. And, and at the same time, he's the one that kind of pointed me to Bonhoeffer because he quotes Bonhoeffer a lot. And so I'm reading Bonhoeffer and then reading the early works of Alexander Campbell. And all the dominoes started to fall where, you know, I, I had struggled with depression my entire life and struggled with with lots of different things that I thought, man, I'm, I'm glad God is forgiving me of, of all of this stuff. But, uh, I, I, apparently this is it. I'm just sitting around waiting to, to die. And, you know, had even had the thoughts of maybe I should hurry that up. Mm. Maybe that's okay um, if I hurry that up. Catch that fire insurance policy. Right, right. And so then to start to understand that God wants to set me free of this worldly life and mindset and, and wrong ways of thinking and really wants to renew my mind. Um, that part of that renewing of mind is uh, also that you know, sort of inherent in all of us is is violence that we want to do violence, and God is saying, no, that's not that's not me. Uh-huh. That's that's the thinking of this world. Um, and I read those, you know, the Sermon on the Mount for years,
2: as if, and you can almost do a whole different kind of theological system on that reading, right? Where it's like, well, Jesus is just sort of pointing out how, you know, righteous he is and how you can never do this thing. Uh-huh. Right? And so it's because you're you're sort of, you know, he's holy and you're not, and that he's righteous and you're not. So that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to demonstrate that. But it's not to actually imitate Christ. It's, you know, and it's like you really can sort of almost build a whole theology based upon your reading of the Sermon on the Mount.
0: Protecting yourself from it.
2: <laughs> oh, it's that's good. good. That's yeah. good.
0: That you have yeah. to- in some way, you, you build a wall that you say, yeah, this is... And I think we do that with the Sermon on the Mount. We do that with the life of Christ in general. That mm-hmm. we, it, it, I think that it, we read it with a kind of uh, distance, you know, a distancing ourselves from the significance of, of what's happening there because we, we, we think, yeah, it's a good thing Jesus did this so we don't have to.
1: Yeah, and then we ignore Paul you know, in things like Romans chapter 12 by just skipping to Romans 13.
0: And I, I yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, it's a good point. You know, yeah. I, and,
0: and misread Romans 13. Yes,
2: right. yes. I've heard Tom say it so many times whenever it's like we're having this conversation about, you know, violence in the state and stuff and, you know, the people on the other side of the argument always want to jump directly to, to Romans 13. And Tom's like, Hold up. Um, so before Romans thirteen, it's Romans twelve. Right. So right. let's let's run that down for a second and talk about well, what it, it actually says before we get to thirteen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, just on the surface, you know, you don't have to think more than uh, a minute, which obviously most people don't think that long.